If you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to Daniel chapter 3. The book of Daniel chapter 3. We continue in our study of the book of Daniel, a book that has two different various sections in it, but in fact does form a unified book. The first six chapters contain stories that we may have heard in Sunday school as children, and oftentimes that's what people think of when they think of the book of Daniel. The second six chapters, though, have prophecies and visions and things that most people think should be left to scholars and theologians. But the reality is, if we understand the first half of the book, then we will understand, to some degree, the second half. This is really critical. Uh, Otherwise, we could just skip to the hard part, uh, but we would not understand what was being said. In the first chapter, we find that among the first exiles from Jerusalem that are in Babylon are four young men who are from the royal family or from nobility. They have become part of an assimilation program created by Nebuchadnezzar. We find Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were given and apparently accepted, not that they had any choice, Babylonian names. They had very strong Hebrew names, and now they are given names that are very much tied to the gods of Babylon. Daniel, which means God is my judge, is renamed Belteshazzar. Hananiah, whose name God has been gracious, is renamed Shadrach. Mishael, who is like God, is renamed Meshach. And Azariah, whose name means God has helped, is renamed Abednego. The giving of a new name is a sign of a new allegiance, but also new ownership. They belong to Babylon now. It's sort of like the story of Esther. Esther is her Persian name. Hadassah was her Jewish name. But in in the case of these four young men, we have four wonderfully strong names that proclaim and exalt the God of Israel, replaced by names that directly or indirectly speak of the gods of Babylon. So it would seem, from a cursory reading, that these men have sold out. We've uh, We've noted in this series that there is attention and there are pressures that come to being a minority in mainstream society. This is a case for God's people. And there is sort of a double temptation. The one is to tribalize, that is to withdraw into, into a ghetto and be away from mainstream society. And the other is to, in fact, compromise and sort of blend in and assimilate to the culture that surrounds us. The first one says, no, we're going to isolate, we will eliminate all contact. And the second one says, there will be no conflict, we're going to compromise and get along with everybody else. But both are, in fact, as we've seen, forms of godliness. Jesus spoke about this on the Sermon on the Mount. If we isolate ourselves, that's like taking your lamp and putting it under a basket or under a bushel, so no one can see the, the light of the truth. On the other hand, To accommodate is, in fact, to lose one's saltiness. And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, uh, and if you lose your saltiness, you're good for nothing. You're not unique. You don't stand out. You don't affect, for the better, the society around us. So, we're not to isolate. We're not to accommodate. There must be a third option. In a foreign land, how could these men 
who belonged to Israel fit in without being swallowed up. There must be a third way, and that is what the book of Daniel is about. This is what Daniel and his three friends lived out. We've seen in the previous Sundays, in chapter 1, Daniel and his friends said no. They would not conform and participate. They won't eat the king's food. In chapter 2, we hear Daniel saying yes, that he in fact would uh, find out what the dream was, if God would reveal it to him, and give the interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 2, we saw last week that Nebuchadnezzar was troubled. He could not sleep. He was having dreams that he could not remember. And this was something deeply troubling. I think not remembering the dreams was as troubling as I want to know what the dreams mean. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was at the top of the world. He was the, the ruler of the empire. And yet somehow his well-being is being threatened by something that he can't quite put his finger on, something that is beyond his control. We shouldn't be surprised at this. That even though he is a very powerful man, he has wealth, his word is never questioned, his armies have defeated all his enemies, he is still troubled. I read this last week, I'd like to do it again, from Reinhold Niebuhr, 1944. The date, I think, is important as we are in the midst of a world war. The lust for power is prompted by a darkly conscious realization of the insecurity of his existence. Man is tempted by the basic insecurity of human existence to make himself doubly secure. And so he grasps after position, fame, wealth, and power. But the more he attains and the higher he climbs, the more basically insecure he feels his position. For the more terribly his fall could be. Therefore, the more he attains, the more desperately and anxiously he is driven to strive to attain. See, we're not the masters of the universe. We're not the center of the universe. And yet, as we rise higher and higher, it seems as though we become more and more anxious about our situation. As I mentioned last week, I think this is true not only of individuals, but also groups. And I would say political groups comes to mind, but also in various social groups, who become more and more irrational and oppressive as they try to gain power. And in fact, as they gain power, you think, well, you guys should be, you have what you want, you should be happy. But in fact, we find that there becomes a more strident and almost an anxiety that propels them to continue to do more and more. And in fact, what you find, and you find it here with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, violence is the result. When Nebuchadnezzar's magicians and astrologers and wise men and all these cannot tell him what his dreams are, his response is, kill them all. Kill them all. If you think about it, this is insane. These are the people who advise him. He's basically saying, kill all my advisors. But it is because he is driven by this insecurity. The man who should be the most secure at that point in human history finds himself incredibly insecure and driven by, I would say, irrational anger. This is where Daniel enters the picture because Daniel is one of the advisors. He's one of the wise men. 
and Ariok, the king's messenger, who's executioner, knocks on the door like, here I am, I'm here to kill you. And Daniel's like, what's going on? And Ariok tells him, the king is having dreams he can't remember and no one can tell them what the dreams are or what they mean. And Daniel asked for a day that he might, or for some time, so that he might in fact ask of God and see if God would reveal to him and then he would be able to tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dreams are. Daniel and his three friends pray. I want to stress that. It isn't just Daniel. This is called the book of Daniel and sometimes this sort of feeds into our American individualism that is just Daniel by himself. It's never the case. He is there with his fellow believers. They pray and the dream, the mystery is revealed to Daniel in a vision. Daniel praises God and then he goes to Nebuchadnezzar and tells him what his dreams were and what they mean. The image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream had indicated four empires, beginning with Nebuchadnezzar's and those that were to come. But the most important part of the dream is not the image and what does the head of gold mean and then you have silver and then you have bronze and iron. No, no, no. Those are completely secondary. What is primary is this rock that is carved out of the mountain and it comes down and it smashes them. This is the kingdom of God. It is the kingdom of Christ who breaks into human history and smashes and changes all human history. It is the kingdom of God which cannot be resisted and is ever growing. Isaiah saw it when he spoke in Isaiah 8 that the Lord Almighty is the one you should regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a sanctuary for both houses of Israel. He will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Centuries later, John the Baptist would say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the gospel. This is the good news. In a world that is filled with dreams of anxiety and crumbling empires as we see in history, it is the good news to those who are trying to seize power, those who live in fear that is expressed in great anger. It is the good news to those who grasp after position, fame, wealth, and power. It is the good news to those who become more and more irrational and oppressive in the use of power while it is in their hands. Here, Daniel and his friends in exile are coming to learn an incredibly important lesson that is for us in the church. One writer put it this way, Israel looked ahead to a series of empires that would rule over the known world. Rather than trying to subvert these empires, they were to seek the good and prosperity and become good citizens within the empire, all the while refraining from eating the food and worshiping the gods of the empires. This program not only preserved Israel through a national disaster of enormous proportions, but also raised Israelites to a prominence they had never before achieved. And think about it. Think of the individuals we see in the Old Testament who are in the midst of an empire. They are a minority, a small, small minority. And yet we see them rising to positions of power. It begins with Joseph in the book of Genesis. And then Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then there's Mordecai and Esther and Nehemiah. 
in the church in the last two decades, it has been popular. There's a tendency to interpret what we find in scriptures to speak of resistance to empire. That is, empire is bad. Star Wars, you know, the empire, it's bad. And I, I, one of the things that has driven this, I think it's political uh, views, that the American empire is seen as something that is bad. I think to see empire in and of itself as bad is to miss the point of what we see in scripture, particularly of what we find in chapter 2 and what follows afterward. We must remember that what was important in Daniel's mind was not to define the four empires, to give a sort of a chronology of worldwide empires, but to let Nebuchadnezzar know of the certainty of the inevitability of the coming of the kingdom of God and that nothing would be able to stand against the kingdom of God. What we find as a main cause of political upheavals in human history is not moral defects which, which really mark all human societies. And neither is it social or economic factors. Again, I think oftentimes as Christians we see empires as evil because of their morality or their economic system or their social system. What we need to recognize is that the kingdom of God is on the march and it has been and it will continue to be until Jesus returns. That there is something beyond our ability to understand. It is something outside human history in which God breaks in and the kingdom is spreading. So if we were to make the application to our situation today or in the recent past, I think people would be tempted to say, godless communism, that's one of those evil empires. But I would suggest to you that American capitalism and democracy is also an imperial system. And the kingdom of God is on the move. To say that the Christian must resist no matter what is to miss what is found in scripture. The issue is not moral defects. The issue is the kingdom of Christ. In the words of Daniel, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it, it will itself endure forever. And we should respond with Nebuchadnezzar. Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Daniel praises God and says, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and deposes them. As I said, in chapter 1, we hear Daniel et al. saying no, they will not conform or participate. In chapter 2, we hear Daniel and his friends saying yes, they accept their involvement in this serious situation. Now we come to chapter 3. And once again, we hear a resounding no from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look, if you would, at the first seven verses here in Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He summoned the satraps, prefects, 
governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image and king, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the trumpet or sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes and all kinds of music you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a blazing furnace therefore as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute zither, lyre, harp and all kinds of music all the peoples, nations and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up Trumpets sort of came in there. I think that's from the King James from my, my childhood. Um, if you read chapter 2 and get to the end and then you start chapter 3, you might get some kind of whiplash because at the end of chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar is saying, he's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. This is God of Israel is the true God. You turn the page and he's building an image of gold. Um, I don't think it's a human image. If it is, it's rather grotesque because it's 90 feet high and only 9 feet wide. I think it's more of an obelisk-shaped thing. It's an image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar has built. Um, And why has he done this? You have to look back at history. When Nebuchadnezzar defeated Judah and brought Daniel and them back, Babylon was still a relatively small kingdom. It wasn't the worldwide empire that it would come to be. And Nebuchadnezzar has under him different ethnicities, different languages, all these different people, different customs. And how is it that you can get them all on the same page? Well, you create something that they all have to do together. So he builds an image and says, okay, this is the plan, boys. When you hear the music, you are all to bow down. Doesn't matter your nationality. Doesn't matter what language you speak. You are to bow down and worship this image. It's something we will all do together. It's sort of a kumbaya movement, a moment. You know, we're all, we'll do this together. This is what Nebuchadnezzar is seeking to do. Daniel told him that he was the head of gold. And I guess Nebuchadnezzar, rather than taking this in humility, is like, okay, yeah, let's, let's make sure that I am this head of gold. And he makes this huge image. So he calls all the political leaders, the satraps, the prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials. And the decree is simple enough. Hear the music, fall down and worship. Everyone must conform. You will notice that the musical instruments are mentioned four times in this, in this chapter. Um, and we shouldn't fail to recognize the ability of music to cement and hold the people together. You may recall in the last football season, the great controversy because certain athletes would not stand for the singing of the national anthem. It's music. It's a song. It's what makes us American. It's what unites us. And when people don't go with the program, then there's something seriously wrong. 
and people get really upset. So here's an image. Listen for the music. When you hear the music, you know what to do. And if, in fact, you don't do that, there are severe consequences. You will be burned alive. You'll be thrown into a fiery furnace, a blazing furnace. Just a side note. A law really means nothing if there are no consequences to breaking it. And we've just gone through uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and there are consequences to breaking God's law. Well, Nebuchadnezzar makes sure that this law sticks because there are severe consequences. Well, guess what? There are a group of people who say, no, we will not do this. Look, if you would, at verses 8 through 13. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Several things to consider here. First of all, the question always comes up, where is Daniel? And to which my answer is, I don't know. But I find it impossible to believe that he was among the people who were bowing down. But these are the three men that are brought to King Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they will not bow down. The enemies of God's people are quick to denounce them. Um, We're not told, by the way, if this was something that was done publicly, if that somehow they were thumbing their noses at Nebuchadnezzar. I, I don't think that's the case. I think it may have been a very quiet thing that they simply chose not to do this. There's no public display of nonconformity, sort of, we're not going to bow down. Um, But somehow, somebody noticed that, in fact, they were not obeying the king. And so they're brought to Nebuchadnezzar. So now the conflict. Look at verse 14. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? By the way, the first part, he should have already known. They worship the God of Israel. They don't worship Babylonian gods, okay? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, of, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? See, the confrontation begins with a question, which is interesting. I, I don't think Nebuchadnezzar wants to kill these men. And so he asks him, is this really true? And then he gives him an opportunity to make it right. You know, if, if you will do it, then, then, then we're cool. We're cool. Just bow down and worship the image. But if you don't, and now we have a threat. But it ends with a, a mocking statement. Yeah, what God is going to be able to deliver you from the fiery furnace? I think it's obvious that Nebuchadnezzar knows that these men worship the God of Israel. And it seems essentially that he is mocking God. You think God can deliver you from this? And they respond, I think, with great courage and dignity. I also think 
they're able to do so because they're not alone. They're not individuals. They stand as a group. Before I read to you, I just would remind you of what the teacher tells us in Ecclesiastes. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven, a time to be silent and a time to speak. And now is their time to speak. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. There are at least four parts to their defense. First of all, we don't need to defend ourselves in this matter. Um, Regarding worshipping the image that you set up. Secondly, if you follow through with your threat, the God that we worship is able to deliver us. Thirdly, even if he does not deliver us, if we we are burned up in the fire furnace, uh, we will not serve your gods. And we will not bow down to your image. And lastly, I think that the issue is not their vindication, like we're great guys, it is God. Nebuchadnezzar has mocked God. Yeah, do you think he can deliver you out of this? I'm more powerful than your God. The question occurs to me, why did these three men think that God would deliver them from the fiery furnace? Anyone who is familiar with church history knows that thousands of our brothers and sisters have been burned for their faith. They've been burned to death for being followers of Jesus Christ. What makes these three men think that they will be delivered from the fiery furnace? I think, in part, that they are remembering a passage of Scripture from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 43. But now this is what the Lord says, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not consume you. Well, Nebuchadnezzar is not pleased at their response. Look at verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. You'll notice Nebuchadnezzar is furious and his attitude toward them changed. I find this quite remarkable. See, I think if anybody else had been brought to Nebuchadnezzar and this guy didn't bow down, throw him in. Somehow he wants to have a conversation, a dialogue with these men. I think he hopes to change their mind. He likes them. But when they give, them the, give him the response that they do, that's it. 
He is furious and his attitude toward them changes. He orders the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual. Um, Ironically, this order results in the deaths of the executioners, not of the men who are to be executed. A side note, we should take note that fury or uncontrolled anger has this capacity to harm other people rather than the person at whom our anger or fury is directed seems rather callous to call it collateral damage, but oftentimes that's what happens. Other people are hurt when your anger, your uncontrolled fury is directed at somebody else. And so these three men are thrown into the fiery furnace. And now the part of the story I think that many are familiar with, beginning in verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that were tied up and threw into the fire? That we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. And the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Three men are thrown in. But then they are seen walking around. They are unbound and they are unharmed. And Nebuchadnezzar notices that there's a fourth man with him, one who looks like the sons, a son of the gods. We need to be careful. I think the King James in older translation says the son of God, as though Nebuchadnezzar would recognize uh, the second member of the Trinity. I, I don't think that at all. He sees this individual as unique. And the only vocabulary that's available to him is to say a son of the gods. I think it is, in fact, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the pre-incarnate Christ who's walking around with the three men. He calls the three to come out, and they do. And there is no indication. Nothing has been singed or scorched or smells like they have been in fire. This is, in fact, a truly miraculous event. And how does Nebuchadnezzar react? Verse 28. Then King Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut into pieces and their houses turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Depends on how fast you read, but you could get another case of whiplash here because he praises God and then he sets up his own and now he's praising God again. He recognizes that God has sent someone special, his angel, to rescue his servants. And he praises these three men because they trusted in God, they defied the king's command, they were willing to give up their lives rather than to worship any God except their own. 
And so he makes another decree, which I don't know is necessarily, I think it's an overreaction. I think he just seems to go from one extreme to the other. That anyone who speaks against the God of the Jews, of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, will be cut to pieces and his house made a pile of rubble. And then he promotes these three men. Some people have seen the call of God's people, and for us at this time, here in 2018, to be resistance. That we are always to be resistors against whatever political system or economic system has been set up. That is to say, we are always to say no to whatever is presented to us. The reality is there are times when we say yes, and there are times when we say no. We see this in Daniel. In chapter 1, I I said that they said no, but they also said yes. They're brought into an assimilation program. They say yes. They're given new names, which they accept. They say yes. But there comes a point where they draw the line and they say, no, we will not eat the king's meat or drink his wine. In chapter 2, we find a yes, that Daniel and his friends pray for wisdom. God reveals the mystery to Daniel, and then he reveals it to Nebuchadnezzar. And then his friends are promoted. They don't say, oh, no, 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 you don't need to promote us. They say yes. They accept that they are, in fact, raised in rank. In chapter 3, we see no. The three men refuse to bow and worship the king's image. But we also find at the end of the chapter that they say yes and accept the positions of power and promotions that they have been given. To think that no is always the right answer, I think, is simplistic. And it is contrary to what we find in Scripture. I've been thinking that perhaps after I finish the book of Daniel, we'll do a series on empire and scripture. Because the Bible is a political book and we need wisdom as to how to navigate, how to live in the society where God has put us. I would remind you, though, of several things that should make clear to us that the answer is not always to be no. Oh, political system, no, we want nothing to do with it. Jesus said that we are to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and he paid taxes. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 13, just part of it, for he, that is the political leader, the position of authority, is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. In 1 Timothy 2, one of the last books that, one of the last letters that Paul wrote, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Remember when Paul was living, They didn't have the best people in charge. And for Paul to write what he did when he did, I think, should speak volumes to us. And we should learn from it. There are times when we say yes, and there are times when we say no. What we find in the story of the exiles is that God has scattered his people, the citizens, if you wish, of Judah. He has scattered them among the nations, but he has done so for a reason. Yes, this is 
in part because they have worshipped false gods. Not all the Jews did, but some of them did, and God has scattered them because of their sin. But also so that they could learn how to live among the nations, sometimes saying yes and sometimes saying no. And how they could be salt and light in pagan empires. That there are certain things that, in fact, they could do. It doesn't violate God's law. But then there are other times when they say, no, I will not do that. The Jews do not or were not to worship false gods. And Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego say, no, we do not serve your gods. We will not bow down to your image. And God can deliver us. But if he doesn't, we're not changing our mind. That is non-negotiable. We are God's people. We are becoming an increasingly shrinking minority in our society today. And I think for a long time, before many of you were born, this was considered a Christian nation. And so going along with the program seemed the thing to do, to say yes to everything. But then you had a group of people, the tradition I come out of, a fundamentalist, who basically end up saying no to everything. There is a third way. We are to be salt and light. And in prayer, with each other, by the way, this is not something we do as individuals, we do it together. And looking to the Spirit for wisdom, there are certain points in which, yes, we go along with the program. And there are other times when we're like, no, we can't do that. We are God's people, we can't do that. Sadly, the people who are always saying no seem to get more ink. They seem to get more press than everybody else. They stand out more. Like I said about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I don't imagine you know, a sea of people in the image and then they play the music and everybody bows down and here are three guys standing up. So you, you look at them. No, I, I think that what they did was uh, private. I don't think they made a big deal of it. But when time came and they were accused, like, yes, we will not bow down to your image. We, some seem to take delight in saying no, with no reflection, by the way. It's, remember years ago, someone talking about an interview with a religious leader who had gotten into politics. And the interviewer said that he seemed to answer out of reflex more than reflection. Yeah, that's not good. We need to think about these things. And know that there are times when we can be a part of the imperial system and say yes. And there are times when, by God's grace, we say, no, I'm not doing that. As a child of God, that violates my conscience. I think it is contrary to what God has told me, uh, told us as God's people, and I will not do it. And I will suffer the consequences. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to accept the consequences. We should be as well. Let's pray together. Father, I suspect that we would prefer things to be simple. Just always say yes or always say no. But this business of having to think through matters and and to pray and to discuss with each other, to hold each other accountable, 
and to know when we can, in fact, be a part of the system and when, as a part of the system, we have to say no. I think as your, sh- your church continues to shrink, this will become more and more of an issue. I thank you that we have brothers and sisters. We don't stand alone. We stand together. We can encourage each other. We can correct each other. But above all, we can pray together and look to your spirit for wisdom. I thank you for the example, the courage of these three men who I suspect did not make a big show of their refusing to fall down and worship. But neither did they deny that they were not going to worship the image. Even if it meant being burned alive. I thank you for the martyrs throughout church history who have given their faith for the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ that speaks to a world of anger, a world of anxiety, a world of oppression, and tells them that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is spreading by your grace. I thank you for the book of Daniel, and may we meditate and think on these things in the days to come. We pray for Kim Nobley as she's got two more months to go that you would watch over her and the baby. For Frankie there in Berlin as she prepares to play in the St. John's Passion. For Becca's uh, great uncle and great aunt who celebrated 50 years. How good you have been to them. As we leave this place, may we remember each other that we should pray for one another in the coming weeks. May your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.